Good afternoon and welcome to the Cato Institute. My name is Tim Lynch and I'm the director of Cato's Project on Criminal Justice. And I thank everybody for joining us today. This afternoon we want to examine the subject of paramilitary police raids in America. And I should say at the outset that uh, this event is being co-sponsored by the Marijuana Policy Project. Uh, we appreciate uh, their support for this event and we also appreciate their ongoing efforts to reform the drug laws at both the federal and the state level. The Cato Institute has published dozens of articles and studies over the years that critique the drug war, uh, how it distorts our foreign policy, how it distracts the police from the fight against violent crime, how it squanders our wealth on interdiction programs that don't work and are basically futile, and how the drug war also undermines our civil liberties. And that's why we, this afternoon we want to focus on this narrower subject of paramilitary police raids. And by paramilitary, what I mean is searches that are conducted by specialized police units, not the ordinary patrolmen, not uh, police detectives, but by these specialized units. In some jurisdictions, they're called SWAT teams. In other localities, they're called special response teams. Um, they're distinguished uh, by a few things. Uh, the garb that they wear is uh, military in nature, and some of the weaponry that they carry is also military in nature. We're talking about helmets carrying uh, machine guns and using flashbang grenades for searches. Also, the tactics that they typically use for these raids are very, very aggressive and confrontational. Um, doors and windows are broken uh, with little or no warning, and some of these raids typically take place at night or very early in the morning, 6, 7 o'clock in the morning, um, when people are just either sleeping or, or just waking up. The problem is that these raids often violate uh, a legal principle, a legal principle that actually predates the American Constitution. It's called the knock-and-announce doctrine. And this doctrine basically is rooted in the idea of respect for private property and respect for the liberty and dignity of homeowners. The basic idea is that when a resident needs to be searched, the police should go to the front door, knock, and announce themselves that they're there on police business and to give the homeowner an opportunity to open the door and welcome them in because they are, they're, they, they are there on police business with a search warrant. Uh, when this does not take place, uh, the chances of a, of a violent confrontation just increase. Unfortunately, the knock-and-announce rule seems to be falling by the wayside. Instead of being celebrated as an important principle for policing in a free society, Nowadays, it is seen as an obstacle to conducting effective drug busts. Uh, if the police have to knock and announce themselves on the threshold of a house, it might give the suspect an opportunity to run into the bathroom and dispose of evidence, or perhaps to get ready to, to fight the police. So our experts this afternoon are going to be discussing the history, the law, and the policy consequences of the militarization of police tactics. Our first speaker this afternoon is my colleague, Radley Balco. Uh, Radley has just produced, uh, I don't think it's an overstatement to say, a, a path-breaking study which is entitled Overkill, The Rise of Paramilitary Police Raids in America. Uh, this report is both shocking and very depressing because it documents just one raid after another of unnecessary violence between the authorities and citizens. Sometimes it's the homeowner uh, that gets injured. Sometimes it's the police officer that is injured because 
When you're in your home at night and you hear that front door come crashing down without a warning, homeowners sometimes think that it's a criminal break-in. So they retrieve a firearm and are fighting against who they think it's a criminal break-in, and it turns out to be a police officer. Uh, Radley has an article in the latest issue of Reason Magazine, which I hope you picked up outside, which details the case of a man named Corey May. Um, This is a man who was at home minding his own business. Uh, He heard someone breaking into his home. He feared for his own safety and the safety of his daughter, so he retreated to the bedroom uh, and retrieved his handgun, and then the front door came crashing down, and then the door to his bedroom came crashing down, and he fired a few shots, again, in what he thought was self-defense, and then the lights came on, and it turned out to be a police officer. And this tragic uh, misunderstanding uh, was then turned and twisted, I think, into a murder prosecution. Uh, And uh, this man, Corey May, is now uh, living on death row in Mississippi. Um, and Radley has brought the details of this case to light, and as more and more people take a close look at the actual circumstances and uh, what happened in that incident, um, you know, it becomes just clear to just about every disinterested person that looks at it as it's, it's, it's an accident. It wasn't uh, a real murder. And that now, thanks to Radley's bringing this case to the attention of more people, the man who didn't have an experienced attorney representing him at trial, now has a Washington, D.C. law firm, Covington & Burling, representing him on appeal. And I think you're going to be hearing a lot more about this case uh, involving the, uh, Corey May. Radley's work on these raids has also been cited by Supreme Court Justice Stephen Breyer in a case that was decided by the court last June in Hudson versus Michigan. In addition to his work on the drug war, Radley writes on a variety of other civil liberties issues. Um, He has a regular column uh, on foxnews.com, and he also has his own uh, website and blog, which is very, very popular. It's called The Agitator. Would you please welcome our first speaker, Radley Balco. Thanks, Tim. I'd like to thank all of you for coming out this afternoon, and particularly I would like to thank uh, Chief Stamper for taking some time to, to come out and speak to us as well. I'm going to go through a a very brief synopsis uh, of the Overkill paper for the benefit of the people um, here who haven't yet read it. Uh, And while uh, summarizing the paper, I'm also going to go through a few developments that have happened since the paper was released in July uh, that I think reinforce a lot of the points I make in the paper. First, the history of of how we got to where we are today. Uh, The concept of a SWAT team was first institutionalized by Los Angeles uh, Police Chief Darrell Gates in the late 1960s. Gates had seen how a successful team of elite, well-trained police officers in nearby Delano, California, had been successful in scuttling the farm worker uprisings led by Cesar Chavez. Concerned with how his own officers had been ambushed and targeted during the Watts riots, Gates assembled his own team, came up with the SWAT moniker, and brought in ex-military officers to train them. Over the next several years, a few high-profile televised SWAT standoffs, uh, including standoffs with the Black Panther militia and the Symbionese Liberation Army, gave the idea national momentum, and soon most of America's larger cities had a SWAT team. Throughout the 1970s, these teams were primarily used in emergency situations, hostage takings, barricades, bank robberies, and so forth. And to that end, they performed marvelously. 
But in the 1980s, the Reagan administration embarked on a much more aggressive, much more militaristic approach to the drug war. Over Reagan's two terms, the White House and Congress enacted a series of bad policies uh, that put us where we are today. I'd argue that the most damaging, uh, uh, one of the most damaging of these policies was the way Congress enabled surplus Pentagon equipment to be transferred to local police departments for free or at steep discounts. Literally millions of military-grade weapons, uh, armored personnel carriers, body armor, and other equipment designed for war is now being used in domestic policing as a result of these policies. Let me give you just a few examples. The Sheriff's Department in landlocked Boone County, Indiana, now has its own amphibious armored personnel carrier, thanks to the Pentagon. The police force in the tiny town of Jasper, Florida, which has all of 2,000 people and hasn't had a recorded murder in 14 years, was outfitted with military-grade machine guns, leading one local newspaper to run the headline, Three Stoplights, Seven M16s. <laughs> In 1997, 60 Minutes profiled a rural, sparsely populated county in Florida whose sheriff was particularly adept at procuring the Pentagon bounty. He proudly showed reporter Leslie Stahl the small air force he had compiled, including 23 military helicopters, two C-12 luxury aircraft, a motorhome, several trucks and trailers, and a bomb robot. National Journal reported that between 1997 and 1999 alone, more than 3.2 million pieces of equipment were transferred from the military to local police departments. With all this equipment, then, local police departments have decided to put it to use by forming SWAT teams, the closest thing domestic policing gets to the military. Over the last 25 years, SWAT teams have popped up all over the country, including in absurdly small towns. Around 95% of cities with 50,000 or more people now have a SWAT team as do 70 to 70, 75% of towns between 25,000 and 50,000 people. They're also popping up in even smaller towns uh, with as few as 1,000 people. And of course, now there's a whole new source of revenue and weaponry, the Department of Homeland Security. Since the paper came out in July, I've noticed a proliferation of stories in local newspapers about local police departments acquiring the Bearcat armored personnel carrier with Homeland Security funds. The disturbing thing is that these particular grants are supposed to be used in preventing and responding to attacks of weapons with we weapons of mass destruction. Now, I suppose it's possible that places like Eau Claire, Wisconsin, and Canyon County, Idaho, are in desperate need of armored personnel carriers to thwart WMD attacks, but I'm fairly skeptical. Terrorism is the reason these towns apply for the grants. Once in place, however, most concede that the vehicles will be used in drug raids. Given that the federal government has spent millions of dollars attempting to link terrorism to illicit drugs, it isn't likely to object. Of course, all of this would be fine if SWAT teams were used as they were originally intended, to defuse dangerous emergency situations involving suspects who possess, <clears throat> excuse me, who pose an immediate threat to the community. Unfortunately, the vast majority of SWAT rates today are used for proactive drug policing, mainly for warrant service. This is mostly because of wrong-headed policies our lawmakers have put in place in the interest of fighting the war on drugs. Asset forfeiture laws, for example, allow police departments to seize, sell, and keep the proceeds from drug arrests. There are also federal grants available to local police departments that are tied specifically to drug arrests. If you're a police chief or a sheriff with a SWAT team, then, 
and you're looking for ways to keep the team for, to fund upkeep and training of the team, sending the team out on drug busts makes perfect sense. Eastern Kentucky University professor Peter Kraska has been surveying the use of SWAT teams since the early 1980s. He estimates that we've seen an incredible 1,300% increase in SWAT deployments over the last 25 years, from about 3,000 per year in the early 1980s to more than 40,000 per year today. Kraska's research also shows that 75 to 80% of these callouts are for routine service of drug warrants. To take one example, we might look at the city of Minneapolis, Minnesota. In 1987, the Minneapolis SWAT team was sent on 35 no-knock drug raids. Ten years later, the city had more than one SWAT team, and together they were deployed 700 times, a 2,000% increase in just 10 years. The use of SWAT teams is moving beyond even the drug war to other nonviolent crimes as well. Earlier this year, a 38-year-old optometrist in Fairfax, Virginia, was shot and killed by the county SWAT team, which had been sent to arrest him on charges of gambling on sports games with friends. He had no prior record, no guns in his home, and there was no reason to think he was violent. A spokesman later said that the Fairfax County Police Department in fact serves all of its search warrants with the SWAT team, including document searches and white-collar crime. They later backed off of that claim. In nearby, in nearby Manassas, Virginia, a SWAT team was recently sent for warrant service on two middle-aged women accused of defrauding the Federal Small Business Administration. The two terrified women were later cleared of all charges. In, two, uh, excuse me, in 2004, in Manassas Park, Virginia, a 70-member SWAT team raided a local pool hall at the height of business on ladies' night. They were looking for drug activity but they raided under the guise of an alcohol inspection, negating the need of a, for a search warrant. They made three arrests. One of the arrestees was an undercover police officer attempting to buy drugs. The other two were informants working for the police who were selling drugs. <laughs> Just this week, a SWAT team in Ohio fired tear grass grenades, grenades through the windows then broke down the door and forcibly entered the home of a man accused of mortgage fraud. I think there are two ways to go about criticizing this overuse of paramilitary police raids. The first, I think, is to criticize paramilitary tactics and, and domestic policing in general. There's certainly some merit to this line of criticism. With the Posse Comitatus Act, the United States has long recognized the need to draw a firm, distinct line between the military and domestic policing. With good reason. The military's job is to conquer an enemy, or as it's sometimes put, to kill people and break things. The police are charged with keeping the peace while protecting our constitutional rights. It's dangerous to conflate the two, but that's exactly what we're doing. SWAT teams are unquestionably military in nature. Many are trained by current or former members of elite military units, such as the Army Rangers or Navy SEALs. As I mentioned, many of the, much of the equipment they use was originally designed for use in war. And indeed, for most SWAT team missions, we tell them they are fighting a war, the war on drugs. The nation's first drug czar, William Bennett, once suggested on national television that we suspend habeas corpus for drug dealers. Bennett later lamented to Fortune magazine, it's, funny, it's a funny war when the enemy is entitled to due process and a fair trial. Bennett would later suggest that drug dealers be publicly beheaded. War rhetoric has pervaded the politics of drug enforcement ever since. It shouldn't be surprising, then, that 
When we outfit domestic police officers in military armor, give them military-grade weapons, train them in military tactics, and tell them that they are indeed fighting a war, that some might begin to take that charge seriously and behave as soldiers on a battlefield instead of peace officers charged with keeping our rights. This isn't an indictment of all or even most SWAT team officers, of course. Rather, it's a reminder that incentives matter, symbolism and imagery matter, and certainly language and rhetoric matter. A more direct critique of these raids, however, needs to look at the entire system that allows them to happen. Because of the volatile, perilous dynamics of breaking into someone's home late at night or early in the morning, the margin for error with these raids is almost non-existent. Wake someone from slumber with a team of armed men, and it doesn't matter if the person on the other end of the raid is a violent drug pusher or an innocent citizen. His first instinct is always going to be to defend his home. Far from diffusing violent situations, then, forced entry into someone's home while they're sleeping creates violent confrontation. From inception to execution, these raids have to be pulled off error-free to avoid ending in tragedy. Unfortunately, the very nature of drug policing lends itself to all sorts of errors. It begins with the use of informants, notoriously shady, unreliable sources whose tips have led to literally hundreds of mistaken raids. Informants can be rival drug dealers, criminals looking for leniency in exchange for information, or professional informants who are paid for their tips. The wrong door raid that killed New York City resident Alberta Spruill, for example, happened after a bad tip from a confidential informant. So did the wrong door raid that killed Boston minister Asseline Williams. Many times these informants are kept confidential and are still used even after they routinely give bad information. After a wrong door raid terrorized Martin and Leona Goldberg, an elderly New York City couple, reporters found that the informant whose tip led to the raid, a man police described in the search warrant as reliable, had actually only a 44% record of success. Just last week, lawyers for Corey May, who Tim just mentioned, the black man in Mississippi uh, on death row for killing a white police officer uh, who had kicked down the door to his uh, daughter's bedroom in a botched raid, recently discovered the identity of the confidential informant uh, whose tips led to the raid. This informant was used in dozens of cases in south-central Mississippi. Since being discovered, he has told stories that don't remotely jive with the information attributed to him in the search warrants. He also recently left a racist, profane diatribe on one attorney's answering machine in which he asserted that he, the informant, would never cooperate to get a black man out of prison. The judges who then sign off on these raids have also been derelict in their position as guardians of the Fourth Amendment. Attaining a judge's signature for a risky raid has become little more than a rubber stamp exercise. Let me give you an example. After a botched raid in Denver in 1999 ended with the shooting death of Ishmael Mena, an innocent man, the Denver Post found in an ensuing investigation that city judges exercised almost no discretion at all when issuing warrants for no-knock and quick-knock raids. Judges in the area denied just five of 163 requests for no-knock warrants. In some cases, judges had actually issued no-knock warrants when police had only requested a regular search warrant. Nearly all of the no-knock warrants granted were granted based on no more evidence than an uncorroborated tip from a confidential informant. A 1999 media, er, media inquiry in the Raleigh-Durham area found that 87% of the drug raids in that city were also based mostly or solely on tips from informants. For all of this risk, confrontation, and potential for violence, it's far from clear that these raids even work. 
After the Ishmael Maynard raid, Denver's other newspaper, the Rocky Mountain News, conducted its own investigation. It found that of the 146 no-knock raids conducted in the city in 1999, only 49 resulted in charges of any kind, and just two of those resulted in prison time. One former prosecutor interviewed for the story was stunned by the results. When you have that violent intrusion on people's homes with so little results, he said, you can't help but ask why. A 1997 study by the Palm Beach Post found that the longest sentence resulting from the 309 raids conducted by the city's 12 SWAT teams was just five years. The vast majority produced sentences of less than six months, parole, or no sentence at all. Studies of no-knock raids in other jurisdictions around South Florida conducted by the Orlando Weekly produced similar results. More broadly, 25 years of more aggressive, more militarized, more confrontational drug policing has done little, if anything, to diminish the supply or use of illicit drugs. Marijuana, cocaine, and heroin are still widely available in America and are generally cheaper and available in purer form than they were in the early 1980s. Perhaps the most frustrating thing to all of this is the lack of accountability and transparency shown by public officials when things do go wrong. More than seven months after the Virginia optometrist I mentioned earlier was accidentally shot by a SWAT team, the police department has yet to release its report on the man's death to his family. More than a year after a SWAT team in Sunrise, Florida shot and killed a young bartender during a raid that netted all of an ounce of marijuana, officials there, too, have refused to cooperate in getting information to the man's family. A good example of this is in New York City. Throughout the 1990s, the media in New York City began reporting on a flurry of botched drug raids in which innocent people were be being awoken and terrorized by mistaken SWAT teams. Activists, civil rights attorneys, and editorial boards warned that unless policymakers passed real reform, innocent people would die. That happened in 2003 with the botched raid that killed Alberta Spruill. In response to public outrage at Spruill's death, the city promised a series of reforms in how it conducted drug raids reform that won the city praise from its critics. In fact, I gave the city praise in the paper uh, that was released just last July. But since then, I got an email from a civil rights attorney in New York named Joel Berger. Mr. Berger told me he was representing several clients who had been, vic who had been victims of botched raids since the spru Spruill reforms. Worse, he showed me court filings in which the city has argued that the reforms it promised were merely discretionary and that it had chosen not to implement them. As you might imagine, mistaken raids have continued in New York. Just last week, tactical police teams in Brooklyn terrorized two families, waking them, holding their children at gunpoint, and turning their homes upside down. The two raids in the same apartment building netted a total of one half-smoked marijuana cigarette. It's impossible to know just how many times these raids go wrong. I lay out about 150 case studies in the paper and the online map we put out in conjunction with the paper includes about 300. But since I began writing about this issue a little more than a year ago, I've received dozens of emails from people who say they too were victims of botched raids but were too frightened or embarrassed to go to the media. One person who contacted me after the paper came out was an upper middle class white man who was wrongly raided by a Houston SWAT team in 1999. He never went to the press or filed a complaint or lawsuit, he said, for several reasons. For one, police at the scene told him not to bother, that it wouldn't do him any good. He also was just starting a business, and despite the fact that he was completely innocent, he didn't want the bad publicity of being associated with a drug raid. He was also embarrassed and frightened. 
Seven years after the raid, his voice was shaking on the phone when he told me that he actually owned a gun. And had the gun been in the apartment at the time of the raid, he probably would have been holding it when police kicked open the door, which means he probably wouldn't have been alive. It isn't difficult to see how this man's fears would ring even more prominently among minority and lower-income people who happen to be the subjects of most of these raids. <laughs> After a year of research, I continue to find cases of botched raids that didn't turn up in major newspapers. Let me give you one example. Earlier this year, there was a botched raid in the Memphis suburb of Horn Lake, Mississippi, in which an elderly couple was terrorized when a SWAT team mistakenly raided their home while looking for a methamphetamine lab. While reading letters to the editor of a Memphis newspaper that had covered the, the story, I found one letter from a man who said his sister-in-law had been also shot and killed in a mistaken raid several years earlier. I looked the man up, called him, and discovered that indeed in 1999, a young woman named Stacy Renee Walker was shot in the head while a police op uh, by a police officer while holding her child <clears throat> during a wrong door raid in the town of Lexington, Tennessee. Police found no drugs or weapons and later conceded that the raid was a terrible mistake. Only the, but only the local town and county newspapers covered the story. Professor Kraska has collected incidents uh, in which a lawsuit related to a botched raid has re reached the appellate level. Kraska tells me that the number of such cases in the 1970s <clears throat> was in the dozens. By the 1980s, there were several hundred, and by the 1990s, nearly 800. My guess is that there are exponentially more of these raids than what we see in the newspaper. Even more troubling is the double standard applied by police and prosecutors when something does go wrong. After looking at nearly 1,000 raids over the last year, including several <clears throat> dozen leading to the deaths of innocent people, I've yet to find a single case in which a police officer was criminally prosecuted. In one case in which an innocent suspect was killed, the officer mistook a blue cup for a gun. In another, the glint off a wristwatch. And yet others, a t-shirt, a remote control, and an ashtray. In the deaths of Stacy Walker, Sal Colosi, and Jose Colon, officers claimed their guns accidentally discharged. I'm not arguing that charges in all these cases are warranted. Prosecutors often cite the perilous conditions under which these raids take place in deferring to the judgment of the officers at the scene, even when it's clear that the suspect was innocent or unarmed. I think that's understandable. It isn't difficult to see how in situations with such a minuscule margin of error, even the most well-trained and careful of police officers might misinterpret a gesture or movement for a threat or a small dark object for a gun. To that end, I'd like to stress that my criticism today isn't of police officers who make these understandable mistakes, though there are certainly cases mentioned in the paper where officer conduct isn't so easily forgiven. Rather, the bulk of my criticism today is aimed at the policies and the policymakers who create these dangerous situations in the first place. Another problem I found is that prosecutors rarely show the same deference to these conditions in dangerous environments when the targets of these raids make the same mistakes in judgment. Even in cases where police target a mistaken house, prosecutors have brought charges against people uh, who mistake police for intruders and fire in defense of their homes. Of course, a strong case could be made that even a drug offender has the right to defend his home from intruders. And when police knock down doors late at night, it is unreasonable to ask the people inside, many of whom are startled from sleep, frightened, and deliberately disoriented by devices like flashbang grenades, to show the composure, judgment, and awareness necessary to ascertain that the men's in their home are police the men in their homes are police serving a warrant and not intruders there to do them harm. 
The Corey May case is obviously one victim of this double standard. Another is Edwin Delamora, a man serving a life sentence in Texas for shooting and killing a SWAT team member who was attempting to break into uh, Delamore's home during a meth raid. <laughs> Delamore's wife was actually on the phone with a 911 operator when Delamore fired his gun. Prosecutors in that case conceded that they weren't certain Delamora knew the men breaking into his home were police. That's why they didn't seek the death penalty. Of course, they did seek and win life without parole. So how do we change all this? Well, I have several suggestions. At the federal level, I think the first thing we need to do is end the Pentagon giveaways. This equipment was paid for by American taxpayers uh, and was intended to be used in war, not against American taxpayers. I think the federal government needs to set a good example. Some of the most egregious displays of power I go into in the paper are cases in which federal SWAT teams are going into uh, hospices and treatment centers uh, and holding AIDS and cancer patients at gunpoint while they search the place for medical marijuana. <clears throat> I think we need to let federalism rule. Another common tactic in uh, localities who have, who have passed policies that make it tougher to engage in these types of tactics is simply to call up a federal police agency. If you get a DE agent to go on the raid with you, the raid can then be subject to federal law, which in many times is laxer than local law. I think we re need to recommit to posse comitatus, both in letter and in spirit. At the state and local level, I think we need to return SWAT teams to their original mission, which is to only respond to situations where the suspect presents an immediate threat to the community. We need to rescind asset forfeiture policies, which I think create perverse incentives uh, to misdirect an inappropriate amount of police attention to drug crimes. For uh, government at all levels, I think we need a strict liability policy with these raids. Uh, we need to do away with sovereign immunity and with um, the immunity given to police officers. I think if a mistake is made in one of these raids and a wrong door is kicked down, I think strict liability needs to apply to both the municipality and the officers who conducted the raid. We need to tighten search warrant standards. I think if you're going to break into someone's home in the middle of the night and use these types of aggressive confrontational tactics, uh, the evidence required to get a search warrant should be greater than to get a regular warrant. I think we need more transparency. A lot of times after one of these raids go wrong, there's a big discrepancy between what police say happened and what witnesses and the victims of these raids say happened. Uh, it wouldn't be difficult to videotape all of these raids. I think that would solve a lot of these discrepancies. I think these warrants should also be tracked from the time they're issued to the time they're executed. We should track whether they were a no-knock warrant or whether they were uh, uh, a knock-and-announce warrant, whether uh, entry was forced or whether the subject of the raid let the police officers into the home voluntarily. Civ uh, civilian review boards are a good idea, but one problem with civilian review boards is that they only look at officer misconduct once they're at the scene. Uh, the Civilian Review Board in New York City was complaining all throughout the 1990s as reports of these botched raids were coming in that they had no jurisdiction over them. If the, if, uh, the raid occurred because of bad information, uh, if a judge was lax in, in applying the appropriate amount of skepticism in granting the warrant, uh, if there was a problem transcribing the address, it was beyond the Civilian Re Review Board's jurisdiction. I think if we're going to have civilian review boards, they need to review not only the conduct of officers at the scene, but also the conduct of the officers who were working with the informant, 
uh, who conducted the investigation, and the prosecutors and judges who signed off on the warrants. <clears throat> Finally, I think there just needs to be more accountability. Uh, when one of these raids goes wrong, I think public officials need to work better with the victims of these raids to make information available to them to ensure that there is accountability and that mistakes are corrected and that reforms uh, are initiated to make sure that they don't happen again. Thank you. Thanks, Radley. Our next speaker this afternoon is Police Chief Norm Stamper. Mr. Stamper's career in law, law enforcement spans uh, more than 30 years. He started out as a beat cop in San Diego, and then he went on to become the chief of police in Seattle in 1994, and then he held that position for six years before he retired in the year 2000. When he retired, he went on to write this much-talked-about book called Breaking Rank, a top cop's expose of the dark side of policing. And as the title suggests, uh, he candidly discusses some of the taboo subjects uh, within the culture of police departments. Uh, taboo subjects like uh, racism, homophobia, uh, the blue wall of silence, and uh, domestic violence involving off-duty police officers in their own homes, to name just a few. Uh, he's an outspoken critic of the drug war, and he was very enthusiastic about accepting our invitation uh, to come here and speak about Radley's new study on paramilitary police raids. Would you please welcome Police Chief Norm Stamper. Thanks very much, Tim. Soldiers follow orders for a living. That's what they do. Police officers, on the other hand, make decisions for a living. That's what they do. Uh, shift in and shift out. Enormously important discretionary decisions. It's not an over-dramatization uh, to refer to them as peace and freedom decisions, life and death decisions. Up until very recently, the police were on a path toward sharing that decision-making authority and responsibility with the citizens they have been hired to serve joining collaboratively to identify and analyze and solve problems. Crime problems, traffic problems, community police problems. Police officers, in short, who are really a part of and not apart from the communities they serve. But I believe that movement is currently jeopardized, if not derailed. And we have seen in jurisdictions across this country a fundamental failure of the police to embrace what is popularly known as community policing. And I refer not to some public relations version of community policing, but to authentic community policing, in which there is a true partnership between citizens and the police. And the reason that this movement has been derailed or is in such jeopardy uh, has been outlined uh, eloquently and elegantly by Radley in his report. It is the proliferation of SWAT units across this country, uh, and more particularly the use of paramilitary approaches uh, to drug raids, certainly, but also to the other raids that Radley spoke about. One of the problems with these military raids, and there's nothing para about them, they have every appearance of, of military raids, is that so often they do go wrong the wrong house is hit. 
Uh, police officers have mistaken, what was it, Radley? Tomatoes, uh, sunflowers, ragweed, the plant that is used for deer food, hibiscus plants as marijuana, or who have purportedly mistaken those plants for marijuana in building a justification for the warrant to hit the house. Police officers have, in fact, shot and killed innocent people. Police officers themselves have been wounded and killed in these drug raids. Uh, I have, as a 34-year veteran of policing, attended altogether too many police funerals. I think it's important to, to point out the reversal of this trend, to raise the question publicly and clearly whether we are satisfied with that reversal of this trend toward building a better, more positive relationship between community and police, where decision-making and problem-solving is, in fact, done jointly. Radley states with good justification that the, the drug war itself is essentially beyond the scope of his report. Uh, he has certainly credentialed himself as, as an opponent of the drug war, uh, as has this institute, much to its credit from my point of view. But I have no reluctance at all in talking about holding individual officers within the context of uh, this drug war accountable for some of the mistakes that are made. If sloppy police work goes into deciding which is the house we're going to hit, if inadequate attention has paid to the logistics, to a blueprint, to lighting, to the other kinds of uh, issues that are important in conducting a raid, if police officers prevaricate in support of an arrest warrant or a search warrant, if police officers plant a knife or a gun at the scene of a botched raid, those individual cops need to be held accountable, which means that prosecutors have got to cowboy up and do the right thing. They've somehow got to get in touch with their spines and make decisions against political pressures, against guild or union opposition to prosecute police officers who engage in willful misconduct. If an informant has not been determined to be reliable, there should be no raid, period. There should be no raid unless that informant has, in effect, been vetted. Two ways to do that. One is through confirmed buys in advance so that we, in fact, satisfy ourselves. One should be adequate. Two or three would be even better so that we can satisfy ourselves that that informant produced, in fact, reliable information. At the same time, I think it's important to recognize that there really is no such thing or should not be such a thing as a confidential informant. And by that I mean an informant that a police agency intends to use in support of a warrant, in support of a raid, has got to be established as reliable through a process of supervision. That is, superviewing the work that is being done by the narcotics agent, perhaps even by a B-cop or at the federal level by an agent of the DEA. So that the name of that informant, his or her history, his or her track record is in fact brought before a supervisor, at least one other person in a position of authority, 
to, in effect, vouch for the reliability of that informant. So any and all of these individual failures, it seems to me, cry out for accountability and for ensuring both before the fact and after the fact that the police are in the conduct of these raids doing the best possible job that they can. Every event in police work does cry out for context. What shaped the event? Was it an anomalous, uh, idiosyncratic behavior on the part of an individual cop? Or was it, in fact, part of the culture of the agency? If it's part of the culture of the agency, you can bet that it's part of the structure of the agency. The structure of American policing is paramilitary and bureaucratic. The rule of the tool applies here, it seems to me. If all we've got is a hammer, then we're pretty much in search of a nail. And we're going to be using that kind of philosophy, as it has been suggested by both Tim and Radley, when the Pentagon, when DEA provide funds and or cheerleading to egg on local police agencies as foot soldiers, as frontline soldiers in the war on drugs. It, it should come as absolutely no surprise that we have the kinds of raids that Radley described, the kinds of consequences uh, that he points out. I am uh, a, a long-time, long-term opponent of the paramilitary orientation of American police departments. My uh, senior thesis back in the 70s was entitled The Community is DMZ, Breaking Down the Police Paramilitary Bureaucracy. Uh, because I believe in a democratic cop. I believe in a police officer who speaks truth uh, to his or her superiors as well as to the community, who works collaborative, co collaboratively with members of the organization and the community to identify and solve problems. That being the case, I think we need to question the paramilitary structure of policing and ask if there isn't a better alternative. Uh, I believe that there is. I believe that getting uh, the finest minds of community and, and police officials and rank-and-file police officers and union officials together to create a new organizational structure makes a whole lot of sense, and I believe that it would produce positive results. That, I also believe, is a little bit beyond the scope of what I've been asked to address. But I think it's important that we, that we examine the paramilitary structure and, and recognize that it is responsible for producing round after round of, of these uh, unfortunate outcomes. Uh, I also have some remedies. I support every remedy that Radley has suggested. I read each one of them carefully. I winced a couple of times. Uh, I have very, very strong support for SWAT. Uh, Daryl Gates, by the way, was not the police chief when he instituted uh, the SWAT operation, which you did not say, but just for purposes of clarification. He was a police middle manager at the time SWAT was formed, and he was a strong supporter of it. Uh, after having seen what happened in Delano and the sheriff's response to the, to the uh, farm workers' strike and the, and the boycott activities. Uh, but he clearly has put SWAT on the map. One of the advantages to organizing, mobilizing, educating, training, and equipping a very adequately staffed, uh, superlatively trained core of police officers to hit a barricaded house, uh, to, to, in fact, uh, apprehend a bank robber, uh, just to catch somebody who is holding 
uh, a child hostage, for example, uh, for me, that's, that's just apparent. Were it not for SWAT uh, and the training of our sniper in San Isidro, in the community of San Diego in 1984, uh, James Huberty would have taken more than 20 lives, 21 including his own, when he was felled by the bullet of, of a SWAT officer. So I think it's very important that we do, in fact, embrace exactly what Radley has suggested, and that is using SWAT as it was originally intended. Some ideas about these warrants. Clearly, they need to be defensible. They need to be transparent. I think prosecutors and judges have copped out. I think it is um, it, it compounds the problem enormously when after the fact, after a botched raid, after an innocent person is killed, for example, for a prosecutor to, to say something like, well, collateral damage in war is always expected. Or, in the words of one city attorney, well, you know, I'm sorry if people got their feelings hurt when their house was raided wrongfully by the police, but we can't expect the taxpayer to foot the bill for that. So it's really important that we look at the prosecution and judicial side of this equation as well. The confirmed buys should be non-negotiable. Verifying the reliability of the, of the CIs must be non-negotiable. I think it's reasonable to take down dealers on the street. You've been working the case maybe for weeks, months, perhaps even years, is to take down the dealer on the street, perhaps even in broad daylight. Hook them up, take them to the house, then serve the warrant, dramatically reducing the risks that Radley has uh, described in, in his report. Or here's a thought. In some cases, you might even, however naive I get painted for this statement, call them down to the station. Some of them will come. Not most. Some of them will come. In other words, this discretionary decision-making authority that we've given police officers being exercised in pursuit of the best way to handle a given situation rather than lockstep militaristic approaches to these raids. I think we do need to drastically reduce the number of SWAT units that have been proliferating, combine them through joint powers agreements, and create uh, the, the means and the ways of uh, total accountability for their operation both pre- uh, and post-raid, as well as obviously during the raid. And then two final suggestions, and I see we're running a little bit close to, to time, uh, th that I think make more sense than any others. The first one is to end the drug war now. End it now. I am a proud advisory board member of LEAP, Law Enforcement Against Prohibition. When Radley wrote his report, we had something in the neighborhood of 3,000 members. We now have over 5,000 members. Police officers across this country at the federal, state, and local level, joined by judges, prosecutors, correction officials, others, within the justice system recognizing that the drug war has done far more harm than good, that it has done incalculable damage, not only to the individuals uh, who are, whose, whose lives and whose traumatic experiences have been summarized in Radley's book, but to the police officers themselves, who then suffer the reputation as, as nanny, uh, the reputation worse as part of a Gestapo, particularly in the context of these raids. I love police officers. I love police work. I love real police work. I love stopping people from hurting other people. What I don't love, what I really resent, is police officers who are called upon by this 
federally prosecuted war uh, to serve as the frontline soldiers, many of whom, frankly, because of the culture, do it willingly and with enthusiasm, but a growing number of whom are recognizing that this war is, in fact, causing more damage than good. If you believe that, I invite you to um, examine uh, www.leap, L-E-A-P, no punctuation, dot C-C, and sign on as a member if you're in law enforcement. If you don't like what I'm saying, at least check us out. Know your enemy. If you uh, are not in law enforcement, I urge you to consider be becoming a friend of LEAP. The final recommendation that I want to make is I think it's not only possible but absolutely necessary that every police officer in this country who might potentially find himself or herself on a raid that has been described, any of these raids that have been described here, experience what it's like to be on the receiving end. In San Diego, we took 25 officers to the city of San Jose and subjected them five at a time in plain clothes with false IDs to field interrogations conducted uh, by members of the San Jose Police Department. This was back in the 70s. Suffice to say, and I could go on and on about that experience, that not one of those police officers did not have a career-changing experience. What does it feel like to be stopped by the police, to have your, the occasion of your presence questioned, your identity demanded, so on and so forth? Whether it was done politely or otherwise, the officers experienced something that they probably had never in their lives experienced. I think it's possible for a police officer in simulation, we do mock scene training now, in simulation to, to feel what it's like to picture themselves at home. Perhaps they're relaxing watching television. Perhaps they're naked and making love. Perhaps they are reading a newspaper, their children playing on the floor. Perhaps they have no criminal record, have never been involved in any crime. Perhaps they are a police officer, and this has happened to police officers. What is it like to be sitting there or sleeping there, to be awakened to a bang? That's as close as I can come to approximating the, the sound of your front door being kicked in, shattered or knocked off its hinges followed by a sound that I couldn't even remotely approximate called a flashbang, intended through its sound to disorient the people inside. Imagine black-clad or cami-clad people with automatic or semi-automatic weapons bursting through that door, ordering you to the ground, or as we've heard at least in some of these raids, pushing you to the ground, sticking a foot on your head, uh, rousting an, uh, an invalid elderly uh, relative, uh, pointing a gun at a three-year-old child, doing the kinds of things that just happen on raids because it's a military raid, it's war, and we've got to make sure that we protect our own safety. Imagine yourself as a police officer experiencing that. If police officers could only experience that and then receive superlative training, assuming that these raids will continue and how they're most appropriately done, I think we'll see a dramatic reduction in the so-called botched raid, and we will see raids that are conducted lawfully and accountably. Thank you.
Okay, we've got some time for questions and answers. I have a couple of requests. Uh, first, uh, when I call on you, please wait for our microphone to arrive so that everybody can hear your question. Second, please identify yourself and any affiliation that you may have, and please keep your questions short so that we can get to as many people as possible. Over there. Uh, my name is Gregory Gums. I'm from uh, Catholic University. Um, I have a few questions. The problem is just I one. Sorry, just one. Uh, <laughs> um, uh, the major problem that I face: uh, a lot of the proposals that you put forward, I think, to deal with the SWAT issue, um, I think, are really right on point. But one of the big problems that I face with the uh, with the report is although you, in the notes, uh, quote from uh, Michael Parenti, a Christian Parenti, lockdown, right? Uh, it seems to me that you overlook something very important here. Is the socioeconomic context against which this whole um, SWAT uh, development takes place. Um, also the fact that you, to a certain extent, uh, although you touch on it, the fact that SWAT came about against the movements in the 60s. Uh, the, the whole issue if SWAT... <laughs> doesn't also have to do with a kind of repressing political dissent in society. So my whole question is, granted all of these um, legal uh, reforms that you want to put in place to do with it, uh, but it seems to me that if you point out that uh, the, the prosecutors are not looking over this, the judges are not looking over this, um, in essence, these things are breaking down, that to come with even more type of legalistic reforms for this is really not going to deal with this, that you need to go to somewhere uh, more independent, like an independent uh, police abuse prosecutor, independent roving anti-SWAT um, uh, judicial teams that can really organize a kind of independently from these type of things to do something about it. But most importantly, how do you see these things working in a society in which there are growing class divides, growing wealth divides, growing in income uh, divides, and a growing uh, group of uh, disposable people, in essence, uh, that New Orleans has pointed out. How do you see anything done? It seems to me that this would end up having to do with getting ultimately rid of SWAT. Uh, uh, SWAT. <laughs> SWAT abolition seems to me to be the only outcome of this, really, to deal with this issue. <laughs> I, uh, I mean, I, I'm not, I can't address the sort of entire socio-economic situation in the United States. I mean, obviously there are, um, you know, I mentioned in, in my, my speech that these raids are, um, I think, disproportionately directed at low-income people. Um, of course, I think the drug war disproportionately affects low-income people. Um, I, I have a suspicion that you and I are going to disagree about what's the, the best way to address the fact that we have uh, poor and low-income people in this country. So uh, I'm not really sure how to address your question. I mean, I, I, I agree with the premise, I guess, but I think we would probably disagree about solutions. Yes, right here. Hi, Holly Brownlee, the Heritage Foundation. Um, I did read Overkill, and I found it really compelling. And I noted uh, some of your success stories of people, uh, police chiefs, towns that have decided that they're not okay with the SWAT teams and they're not okay with what's going on. Uh, what 
what can you offer uh, as an argument or advice to citizens, to, to local forces, to local legislators who don't, who aren't okay with this and who, if they are fortunate enough to read this study or talk to people who have known about it, what can they do about it? Uh, I'll answer just briefly and then I'll let Norm address that if he wants. Um, well, I, he might say the same thing I'm going to, but one thing you can certainly do is invite people like Norm Stamper um, or other uh, former police chiefs with LEAP uh, you know, to explain uh, what they've done. Um, unfortunately, the, the success stories, I think, are few and far between. Um, New Haven is one good example um, where uh, uh, Chief McNamara uh, in San Jose, I think, um, has a realistic approach to how they use their SWAT team. <clears throat> Excuse me. So I think um, certainly you know, consulting, uh, if you're a legislator who recognizes that this is a problem, consulting with people who have addressed it in the, in the correct way would be certainly one, one avenue, I guess. I, I would just support that. Thank you. Organize, mobilize, educate, make sure that, you know, particularly elected officials and appointed police officials um, are not allowed to simply move on with business as usual. The other thing also is, I mean, one thing we tried to do with the paper and, and with the online map um, was to dispel the notion that, that these botched raids were isolated incidents. Uh, and I think what, what often happens in a lot of when something goes wrong in a small town or a small city um, it, it gets dismissed as an isolated incident, uh, and I think if you know um, if you can point to other uh, uh, incidents that have happened nearby, you can start to dispel that notion. Um, one thing we did with the map is it's sortable by state, so that you know it makes it very easy to write a letter to the editor, for example. Yes, ma'am. Thank you. My name is Annabelle Fisher, Chief Stamper. It's good to see. And my question is directed to you, and I guess Mr. Balco. I have lived in Seattle and familiar with the community policing concept and work with Chief Stamper. I, I believe in it. However, I would raise this question. Police, like teachers, need structure. They are trained to abide by the law. They have police chiefs who they are accountable to. It is nice to be able to work with the community as well. Uh, when one wishes to enforce community policing, as you did try to do in Seattle. However, where does a police officer draw the line between working with the community and its neighbors, as well as the police department, the judges, the courts, and the politicians, so that their decisions are really based on the book? And how were your, was your book received by other current police chiefs in larger cities, Seattle's not a small town. You addressed the, the raids in small towns. There is a difference when you do a militant raid in a small town as opposed to D.C. Thank you. I think it's safe to say that most police officers do not like the book. Um, there are many police officers, including a, a large and growing handful of police chiefs, uh, who have sidled up to me at conferences and so forth and said, I agree with you. And I say, may I quote you? And then they ask, well, what have you been smoking? I mean, they, it's, 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 uh, it, and we need to somehow create a, a conversation in which people with differing points of view about all of these issues, including the drug war, can come together and, 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 and talk about whether or not what we're doing is working whether or not it satisfies public safety demands, 
satisfies the demands of the Fourth Amendment and the civil liberties to which we are all entitled in this room. And if not, what we can do differently. So I'm just pleased that it's, it's, it's helped to foster conversation. I'd like to address the community policing aspect. I think community policing is a wonderful idea at the local level. Uh, I think it's a horrible idea at the federal level. And I, I point out in the paper there are several examples where um, uh, grants uh, from President Clinton's community policing programs actually uh, ended up going toward forming SWAT teams um, because the federal grants aren't supervised. Uh, once they get down to the local level, they're, they're very, very, very much discretionary. Uh, and uh, the, the Wisconsin, uh, the Madison Times in Wisconsin pointed out several examples where once these grants got to the local level, they were actually used uh, to support these paramilitary tactics, which is sort of the opposite of community policing. So um, at the local level, I think it's a great idea, but in terms of just sort of giving these block federal grants for community policing, uh, they a lot of times they end up uh, achieving the opposite of what they're intended. I'm going to exercise the moderator's prerogative and answer, ask a question to Chief Stamper. You started your talk off by uh, talking about uh, wanting to hold individual police officers uh, accountable, and when they engage in wrongdoing. And I just wonder whether out of your experience of being a police chief in Seattle or maybe talking with other police chiefs in big cities, whether there's experiences where they have, where they come across a situation where there's a shooting and maybe it's a second time or an officer, they think this officer, you know, doesn't belong on the force. You know, I mean, he's mi mi using deadly force inappropriately, but then you're hampered by getting that guy off the force. I, I, I see from your book you have a chapter on labor unions, for example, and sometimes there's union rules. Uh, just to give the benefit uh, to members of the audience who may not be familiar with some of this stuff, you take a shooting like the Corey May case, the guy in Mississippi who fired defending his home, a uh, police officer gets killed. Police officers want to talk to him right away uh, to find out what happened and get his side of the story. That's their way of investigating, and they think they're going to get at the truth very quickly if they can talk to the person involved in the shooting right away. And if the person says, well, I don't want to talk to you, then, you know, they get the, well, what do you have to hide? You know, why don't you just tell us what happened? But when the police officers are sometimes involved in shootings, like over here in Maryland, I understand they have like a 10-day rule. Uh, this is by police unions where a police officer involved in a questionable shooting will not be, does not have to talk to like internal affairs for 10 days before he gives his side of the story. So I was just wondering from your experience, are some of these obstacles in getting uh, perhaps men on the police force who don't belong there off the police force? Well, I think you've identified a couple of the issues, the obstacles, one of, one of which uh, is contract law, which binds police agencies to the provisions of, a, of, a, of typically a union-driven contract. What happens uh, is that in jurisdictions that don't have a lot of money to give their police officers raises that I believe they deserve, or help with working conditions that, that, that they deserve and fringe benefits and so forth, they'll wind up looking at non-economic factors that they can put on the table. So they start negotiating away management rights and prerogatives, and they, in fact, uh, encode uh, these kinds of provisions. Uh, Ten days here, a week there. In Seattle, I, I was absolutely flabbergasted that my internal affairs investigators could not question in person a police officer accused of wrongdoing that it had to be done on paper. It was a sort of an interrogation or interview by correspondence. Uh, so combined with a delay, what you had was an incredible opportunity for a police officer, let's say that police officer is wrong, uh, to 
pretty much escape responsibility, an opportunity to talk to witnesses, an opportunity to rethink what he or she wants to say. We wouldn't allow that in a criminal investigation. I need to make clear that if you go to talk to somebody in a criminal investigation and they choose to exercise their, their Miranda rights, then the interrogation ceases at that moment by law. In, in police, we, police work and public employment, we've got Garrity decision, which means that we can say, you're, I'm sorry, you're stuck. We're not going to use this in a criminal court, but administratively, you've got to answer these questions. So if you take 10 days to get to those questions and then, then do something as, as silly as ha engage in this correspondence process, you really help to undermine the investigation. The other is that I personally believe that police administrators across this country, too many of them, certainly not all, are altogether too wary of civil service um, and, and other review bodies, arbitration, so on and so forth. My attitude was, if I had a case to fire a police officer, I'm going to fire the police officer. And if I get overturned, I get overturned. But I think it's really important for, for police administrators to use the authority they do have. Thank you. Yes, sir. Hello. My name is Sal Colosi. I'm the father of the optometrist who was shot in Fairfax uh, in January. Um, police officers stop people for drunk driving or suspected of drunk driving. They stop them to give them a breathalyzer. What would be your view of having all police officers drug tested any time they're involved in any kind of a shooting? I, I actually would support that. Uh, and the reason that I say that, it's kind of an anti-libertarian position, isn't it? But the reason I say that is we have at least one case that Radley has identified in which a SWAT officer, I don't believe this was your, your son's case and, and, and my deepest condolences, uh, but one police officer shot another. Turns out the police officer who did the, was it a fatal shooting, was under the influence of Vicodin. Um, it seems to me something as important as human life at stake What's the harm in, in taking some blood and finding out whether that police officer has any kind of uh, intoxicating or other uh, substance in his or her system that would affect judgment? Yes, that is not an unlibertarian position. I mean, if you're going to give people... Okay, cool. <laughs> I stand corrected. Give people the authority to, you know, carry carry guns and order people around. Uh, uh, you know, high standards are are necessary. So. I feel validated. Thank you. <laughs> yes, sir. Hi, my name is John Franchi. I'm a uh, well. I have a degree at Fordham, and I used a lot of your materials in my master's thesis, the American uh, military officer's perspective on the American drug war. Uh, I'm a retired army officer, so uh, you know, I appreciate the opportunity to be here. Uh, my question is, just looking at your title, the rise of paramilitary, and then we talked about the uh, the rise of the American drug war, so to speak. Uh, in this research, could you uh, conclude or draw a conclusion that a lot of this nationwide has a lot to do with the lack of civic education in the American public school system and that the people who are executing this policy or implementing the policy on the street level do not have the fundamental education to make the kind of cognitive cognitive decisions that they have to make uh, in, in executing uh, local, state, or national policies. Wow. Um, if you want to, I'm not going to comment on the, uh, I mean, I don't think I'm qualified to comment on the, the level of education of, of most of the police force out there. That might be something you're 
Well, I, I, I think it's, it's safe to say that most police departments across the country have a high school or GED education requirement entry level. Some have two years, some have four years of higher education. To me, that's not the issue, although I think it's a very important issue. Uh, regardless of one's educational level entering police work, what's the education and training, the acculturation that takes place as a member of that, of that agency? Um, the, the, u, the, use, the, the, the term homeowner has been used a lot. Um, I would dare say that there are many police officers, too many, who don't see the person in a drug raid as a homeowner. And everything that that means in terms of civic uh, reality, the right to be secure, the right to be private, the right to feel safe in one's own home. That homeowner is, the, is a target. Uh, the police are on what I described as not paramilitary, but a military mission, and that is to take down that person, to capture that person. That being the case, I think the mindset of those officers who, who find themselves in these, in these raids is, is not at all about civil liberties. It's not about public safety. It is about their own personal safety, which I respect and honor, and it is about meeting their military mission. So the person's not really a homeowner. I think that's a, a switch that gets made in the, in the mind, which is why I come back, no matter how it's done, to introducing police officers to what it might feel like if you are on the receiving end of one of these, these raids. I'm afraid we've run out of time. Everybody here is invited to the luncheon upstairs. Would you please give both of our speakers a good round of applause?